Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Alex Hinton on the show. Alex is Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights at Rutgers University. He's written extensively on the genocide in Cambodia, including the award-winning book, Why Did They Kill? Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide. But he has also thought deeply about what an anthropological approach to studying genocide might look like, laid out most specifically in his book, Annihilating Difference. In the past years, Alex has turned his attention to the question of transitional justice. Years of work in Cambodia, thinking and talking and observing, has led to the publication of two related books. The Justice Facade, Trials of Transition in Cambodia, uses Cambodia as a lens through which to think through the global project of transitional justice. Its companion volume, Man or Monster, The Trial of Khmer Rouge Torturer, offers a detailed description of the trial of Doik, the commander of the S-21 prison in Cambodia, in an attempt to think through questions of guilt and motivation on a very individual level. The two, uh, when you pair the two books, um, it really results in a, in a need to think again about questions of, of transitional justice and, and what they mean um, and how what they mean changes from time to time and place to place. And anyone interested in the question or in the practice of transitional justice will have to wrestle with the books. I'm eager, eager to discuss them with Alex. So Alex, welcome and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So we always start by asking uh, guests just to say a little bit about themselves uh, and, and how they became interested in the sub- subject of mass violence. And so I, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe in particular, uh, aside from becoming interested in mass violence, why through the lens of anthropology? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, and I could give a very long answer, but I'll try and be, uh, be brief, of course. The, um, you know, sort of, if we go back to my uh, educational background, I went to Wesleyan University, and when I was there, I always did interdisciplinary programs. Uh, there was a freshman integrated program, then I was in the College of Social uh, Studies, uh, but I didn't major in anthropology. Uh, but over time, I looked for a discipline that would enable me to sort of broadly look uh, at many different things, uh, and that was anthropology. When I got to graduate school, um, you know, I traveled a lot. I wanted to work in a Buddhist country, and I narrowed it down to Tibet and Cambodia. Uh, at that time, Cambodia was just starting to open up uh, with the UN election, and Tibet was closed down. Uh, so I'd have to go to the border uh, to a part of India. Um, so I went to uh, Cambodia. At first, I was uh, as a graduate student uh, my second year, and at first, I was planning uh, to study ethnopsychology, uh, which is sort of looking at local understandings of emotion, self, uh, memory, so on and so forth. Um, and then I immediately, the first week I was there, uh, I saw guns pulled out, a person was shot in the street. 
uh, and then began to look at the classroom where I was learning Khmer and there were bullets in the wall. Um, and I always, one conversation uh, that I remember very well, I was living with a family and eating with them and the electricity would go out all the time uh, in Cambodia. This is in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, one night electricity went out and you get used to it and you just keep doing what you're doing. You're eating. I guess you can eat in the dark. Uh, you know, you're just used to it. Um, but suddenly the father started recounting his experience um, of being arrested, being sent to a re-education camp. Uh, so through all these different factors together, uh, started driving me towards the issue of mass violence and genocide. You know, some people come to it from, say, a family background or history uh, or embedded experience in a particular context uh, where mass violence has taken place. But it's not the case with me exactly, though, arguably, you could talk, of course, about the United States in those terms, uh, as I'm looking at in a uh, project I'm currently working on. Um, but Cambodians often say, uh, you know, why did Khmer, uh, that's the word for Cambodians, why did Cambodians kill Cambodians? Uh, and in a sense, that question became my question uh, that I looked at in my doctoral field work. Uh, and was, that's where the title of the book, Why Do They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide, comes from. It echoes the local question and uh, sort of a you know, jump ahead uh, to the current project I'm doing. Um, I was actually invited to testify at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in 2016. Uh, so I went from being an observer to being someone who literally was, you know, I guess, a true participant observation uh, and I was asked to testify on the basis of why did they kill? Uh, they didn't want me to talk about my research on the tribunal for good reason, I guess. Um, so, you know, so all three of the books sort of came together at that moment. So, so writing two books at a time is, um, I'm, I'm going to say a modest challenge, but of course it's much more than that. Did you decide, how, how did those two books together come into being? Well, the, the second one uh, was the first book was not planned. I guess we should uh, we should begin there. The justice facade is something along the lines of the project. Uh, I was I went to Cambodia to study uh, when the tribunal uh, was taking place. One of my first lessons, I should say, uh, no, as a bit of an aside, is that. Uh, everybody kept saying, you know, going back to 2006, 2007, and to 2008, oh, you know, it's going to get going in two months. And I kept waiting. And everybody, two months later, people said, well, just wait another two or three months. And finally, in 2009, it got going. Um, so I'd actually been waiting a really long time uh, for uh, the tribunal to commence. I mean, it commences in the sense that it does investigatory work. Uh, it's a French civil law uh, influence system as opposed to the common law tradition uh, in places like the United States. Uh, so it operates differently. So there's a lot of investigation that takes place by judges before anything begins. Uh, and that, that was part of the, of the issue. Um, so the first uh, case was case one, uh, which was the trial of Doik, uh, the head of uh, S21, or it's widely known now as the tool slaying uh, genocide museum that's been built on the site uh, where this, uh, this person, Doik, uh, oversaw the torture and execution of somewhere between maybe 12 to 20,000 people. 12 is more legalistic that they have documentation for. 20 is what people think is the actual number, uh, you know, at least 20, uh, because not everything was documented. Um, so that's sort of how the, the project got going. Uh, in terms of the books, I went there to understand 
uh, sort of how you have this thing, global justice, which had often been predominantly based in sort of Judeo-Christian tradition uh, context uh, that was being brought to a country that was Buddhist uh, in Asia. Uh, And I want to know, based on my experience, you know, what does this mean to people? Will it have meaning to the people? How will they understand it? Uh, as opposed to just sort of thinking, oh, justice has arrived, it's going to be meaningful, which is often the way in transitional justice, especially early on, uh, the way that it was spoken about. But so as I began to do my research, Deutsch's trial commenced. The second trial was, you know, what people would say the big one that had Nguyen brother number two, and Kyusun Pan, and a couple of other people who died during the trial. Actually, Nguyen just died in August. Um, Anyway, so that was what people were sort of waiting for. That had the genocide charge, but the first one was symbolically the big trial because it was, you know, Doik was well known. Everybody goes to Cambodia, goes to S21 or Tool Slang um, and, and the killing fields nearby. Uh, so symbolically, it was the site of genocide, even though genocide wasn't a, a charge. And Doik was interesting uh, because he said he was going to, his French lawyer said he's going to cooperate. Uh, you know, he wants to reduce sentence. Uh, and he spoke, but, and then again, this is uh, civil law. So civil parties literally sit in the court and are party to the proceedings and they support the prosecution. So they were in the court, they testified. And this sort of, dram- these dramatic encounters uh, sort of took over. And before I knew it, I had been detoured off the justice facade, uh, though didn't, of course didn't have that title at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a book, I sort of, when I was writing, they were sort of together. The book was over 250,000 words. Uh, as I looked at it, I realized there were two books there, uh, and I split off, um, what became Manor Monster, um, and, uh, it sort of took over, uh, anyway, so it was a, I sometimes say that Doik hijacked my, my research project. It was unexpected. Uh, and then afterwards I returned and wrote, uh, the justice facade. And the two fit together very different, but they also fit together in many different ways, as you noted uh, at the very beginning. Uh, my sense is, excuse me, that research projects often take those kind of right turns or pauses or, um, or are inspired by something that seems serendipitous at the time. But, but we'll, we'll talk about the books in just a second, but, or the subject of the books. But, but first, uh, each of the books begins with an image, um, one of them with an image that you saw, a picture, another of them with, I guess, a pamphlet or a fly, uh, not a flyer, but a pamphlet or a small book or, or something, and, and, and with your very precise, detailed, careful description of the images in it. So um, Manor, Manor Monster has um, traditional, his, uh, well, perhaps not historical, but anthropological kind of literary style, but it also has poetry. Um, Could you say something about how you developed the kind of eye for detail that you display that I often think that that is perhaps rare among historians, maybe not among anthropologists? You know, that's a, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, And again, it's a, complicated one, you know, so how does anthropology differ from history or psychology? Um, You know, one of the ways uh, is the method of participant observation, uh, 
which some people jokingly talk about as sort of hanging out. Um, but the idea is, you know, being present in a fieldwork context and not actively seeking out information, but seeing what unfolds. So in a way, you could look at Man or Monster as the outcome of precisely that, where I never went in thinking I would write about it, but it emerged, right? So it's very localized. Uh, you know, when I teach methods, I often try and convey this to students because a lot of people go and uh, to get funding, you have to have these proposals and they're all put together and they kind of lead from step A to B to C to the outcome. And to me, that always has seemed sort of predetermined and sort of the wrong way. You want to demonstrate that you can do research and you know how to do research. You've mastered the methods and that's what a proposal is all about. But you need to be present and open to radical changes. Um, you know, and I supervised uh, doctoral students. Uh, and again, you know, people often have trouble. How do I begin? And I, for me, I, you know, I, I sort of say Sometimes I talk about it as a splash point. It's like a moment that suddenly you see the project in a different way. And for me, it's often image-based. Um, so Manor Monster, as you noted, has the cover image, uh, which is a photo of Doik at the Tool Slaying Museum of Genocidal Crimes, which again is built on uh, the site of S21, the torture and uh, the torture and execution center that he ran. Uh, and that photo of him actually at the trial had been uh, defaced. People had written, you know, put graffiti on it. Uh, they had scribbled out his eyes. Uh, but what was interesting, someone had scribbled evil uh, on the neck of his, of his uh, polo shirt. Um, but what was interesting is there was Khmer and English. So when people look at that, right, the people who only speak Khmer are reading it in terms of one set of understandings. And the people who read English are reading the English and there's a photo. And so effectively everyone, if you want to put this way, is putting their own caption on an image. So they see him, but they're labeling him or captioning who he is, um, you know, through this image and through different languages. And as you, you know, and so I went and I looked at the terms, uh, there, was, there was slang, um, but just briefly to give you a sense for this. So the eyes in this photograph um, are scribbled in. And so when many people from, say, a Judeo-Christian tradition look at it, they think it connotes like Satan, you know, evil, right? It's demonic, eyes glowing. I went one day and I sat down on a bench with a Cambodian, perhaps the leading, Jumai, the leading Cambodian uh, civil party uh, at the ECCC, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, the court that I was studying. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, in building D, floor two, room three, uh, there, there's a photo and you see there's a photo of Doik and people scribbled in his eyes. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know that photo. And I said, well, what does it mean? What do you think it means? You know, I was really struck by that. And, and he said it symbolizes his ignorance. So from his Buddhist Khmer frame, right, he was reading it as the acts that were committed by Doik were committed because of his ignorance, right, one of the Buddhist sins. In fact, there is no exact translation of the word evil in Buddhism. Instead, you say sin, extreme sin. 
Uh, so already you have the word evil, which suggests a whole set of meanings from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And in the Khmer frame, you have a completely different reading um, of this photograph. So this photograph became this notion of different circuits of meaning that we're putting in and people seeing things from different uh, positions uh, became the guiding motif. But I knew that had to be the cover. And in fact, uh, as I write about, I the book was accepted for publication uh, by a major publisher, uh, but they didn't want the title and they didn't, they said, you can't use this image as the cover. Uh, and because I have, you know, tenure, I was able to do this, um, but I walked away from the book contract and I, and I looked for another publisher who loved it and did a great job with the cover that was Duke university press. Um, but no, you know, sort of an aside and academia, you, if you don't have tenure, you're disempowered in those sorts of contexts um, in a way that I, I wasn't because I had tenure. Um, so I got the the image uh, and even the notion, it speaks to the notion of man or monster, which inflects the two readings of Doik that were being presented by the prosecution, the defense at the tribunal, that ultimately, right, and this is, again, something I talk to my students about, you want a title that inflects, says something about the larger argument uh, of the project and the collapsed binary of manner monster encodes one of the central ideas of the book which is that uh, as part of uh, the way human beings process their reality and the way they think they articulate meaning articulation of meaning leads to uh, what i talk about is redaction truncation and so the reading of doik that was going on in the tribunal paralleled the reading that was taking place at Tool Slang, um, S21 prison, when people were being interrogated and tortured, where they were trying to create a certain sort of being, as well as, say, the psychological assessment of Doik that was taking place at the tribunal. And so this, this notion of man or monster, which ultimately comes down to this one photograph, ultimately condensed many of the meanings uh, that are in the book. Uh, and what, you know, just, sorry, the one part of your question, uh, that you began with that I haven't addressed, um, yet, uh, you know, also the other book begins with a narrative as well, uh, but I'll sort of set that aside, uh, in terms of method, uh, you know, so anthropologists actually often don't have, have a literary style. Uh, they often like everybody else, write Expository prose that sort of tells you what's going on. Um, so I, because I needed to evoke as opposed to tell, uh, I adopted a number of literary strategies. And so I often present things to evoke tension and ambiguity as opposed to sort of saying, this is what I think. It was kind of interesting because some of the reviewers say, ah, this is what Hinton thinks, or boy, I wish Hinton would have said, is Doik a man or a monster? So some people can sort of miss the point. But that's fine because the book's written to be generative, to stimulate discussion, to have the reader come to a conclusion, not have me tell it as it is. Uh, so in this sense, this what I call an ethnodramatic methodology, right? So ethnography is what anthropologists do, ethno, study of you know, ethnos, uh, ethnic groups. Um, drama, the performative aspect of the tribunal, people called it the show. Uh, so I formulated what I call an ethnodramatic uh, method that uses literary strategies, poetic form, 
Uh, it uses juxtaposition versus exposition. Um, the sort of haunt, the haunted, the undead iteration, those things that have been pushed out of sight by the desire to articulate and expound uh, to present reality in a certain sort of way. That's a constant background motif as well. Um, so, you know, this book actually is an odd one in anthropology as well, even as there are literary traditions within anthropology. Um, but I, I was interested because the book, you know, was pretty widely reviewed, 30, 40 different reviews, which is, you know, a lot for an academic book. And the array of responses was, uh, you know, astonishing. Uh, and some people sort of got it. Some people got a lot of it. Some people didn't get much of it. Uh, and, but that's okay because the book isn't meant to, in a sense, getting it in the end is realizing there is no one it to get, right? It's the multivocality, the openness, the generativity, uh, you know, which all comes down to the notion of thinking critically about the categories we use, which, and I'll just sort of finish up, finish up here. I come to at the end of the book, which is, you know, the book ultimately entails an ethics in terms of how we look at other people, uh, how we articulate them, and the need to sort of see the complexity of human beings as opposed to reducing them to singular categories, which is what we're sort of uh, through our evolutionary history, through our, the way we process, cognitively process information, right? We're situated to uh, read other sorts of um, people. So that's maybe a good transition point to to talk about um, the justice facade, because I think both books have an ethics. Um, at least that's my sense from, from reading them. So, so maybe to start with that book, and then we'll come back to Doik and, and the trial at the end. Um, you, you, uh, there, there's a central claim that runs through this book, and, and that's that the proponents of transitional justice in the late 20th century shared a set of goals and understandings that, that fit it together into a kind of common vision for transitional justice. And you label the vision the transitional justice imaginary. So, so what do you mean by this and how and why did it emerge? You're asking very good questions, but ones that, uh, you know, you've talked about for a very long this time. This is long form. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I will try and uh, be short. Um, be long and brief at the same time. Yeah, so there's a history uh, to you know, transitional justice, the word wasn't used, uh, you know, in the 1970s, for example. Uh, people spoke more about democratization, for example. Um, there was a shift that took place in the aftermath of the Cold War when suddenly uh, we had the sort of resurgence. There were, there were lots of things going on in terms of local tribunals, the beginning of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, uh, but sort of the post-Nuremberg and Tokyo trial legacy of having international tribunals um, of the sort that were envisioned by Raphael Lemkin back in the Genocide Convention, uh, you know, became possible in the sort of this moment of hope after the end of the Cold War that was also a moment of tragedy because we had a number of conflicts, including the conflicts uh, in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. Um, and so tribunals were established there as people were and, you know, and there was talk uh, began to emerge about, for example, the South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and at this time, people discussed, you know, how do we talk about and what can we do about these situations where you have a society uh, where awful things have taken place and they need to transition to. And usually that thing they were transitioning to in the discussions 
was a liberal democratic uh, state of being. Uh, so in a way, it took up a lot of the assumptions of democratization theory and recast them uh, in terms of this teleology of transformation from a state of authoritarianism to one of liberal democracy. Um, so the transitional justice imaginary refers to this sort of classic vision of transitional justice uh, as involving this teleological transformation from state A, authoritarianism, which has a whole set of uh, what we often call binary oppositions. So you have uh, you know, authoritarianism as opposed to uh, democ- democracy. You have the primitive versus the civilized uh, or the savage, barbaric, what, what have you. Um, anyway, so you had this sort of binary opposition uh, that really was a current running through, especially at the beginning, almost all of the discussion about transitional justice that continued through the time I was doing my research. And I saw it operative uh, in transitional con- justice contexts um, around the globe uh, that would inform the projects. But again, you know, as I mentioned before, when I first uh, came about and was formulating my project, my goal was to say, well, here's this thing people are talking about. Global justice is another term that's used. It's landing in sight in radically different cultural contexts. And Cambodia is certainly one of those because, as I mentioned before, it's a Buddhist country. There are also Muslim Joms, uh, but it's predominantly Buddhist. Uh, and that was the question, like, how are people going to understand it? And uh, certainly a reductive way of looking at it, such as through the notion of it's simply a teleological transformation uh, into democracy with all the glories that come with it, uh, was a vast oversimplification. So you were right to sort of point out that's one of the connections in terms of articulation, redaction, and then the what's linked to it, which is a term uh, dehiscence. Uh, so yeah, it's sort of a, you know, there's a philosophical literature that speaks to it. Um, but it's a bursting forth of that, which has sort of been suppressed. And the image I give when I teach, uh, is the incredible Hulk, right? The incredible Hulk has this potentiality. It's within, and then suddenly it bursts out and he becomes something else. And so in a way, if you return back to this original idea, if you have this transitional justice imaginary, it suggests one thing, it articulates in a way. What it does is it redacts, represses, pushes out of sight all the local meanings, but those local meanings dehiss, they explode back out like the Incredible Hulk in lots of different ways. Uh, they did so in spectacular form uh, in the courtroom where people, for example, one person came, uh, was testifying and held up a picture of his brother uh, and said, my brother, he was sorry. So his brother was killed at S21. He held up a photo of his brother and said, my brother, you're here with me. Your spirit's here with me in this courtroom. And he spoke to his brother. So suddenly you had, right, as opposed to the secular, the religious uh, imploding, exploding into the courtroom. But what it suggested is that people like that photo of Doik people were reading this thing we call justice in very different ways. And so a lot of the book is about trying to look at the way that Cambodians, how they understood what was taking place, uh, which was very different than this transitional justice imaginary. And the title uh, justice facade uh, is basically a metaphor for the transitional justice imaginary. And it suggests uh, the notion of facade 
as an obfuscation in the sense like a screen, an image is being projected, but other stuff is going on behind it and out of sight. So one is just sort of missing what's going on. But facade also implies deception. Uh, so I'm not saying the court is a giant facade, which is what defense lawyers sometimes say. I'm using it in a more metaphorical, but there is a way in which the court itself is highly politicized and through a set of political objectives, decisions, often tacit, uh, constructs knowledge in a certain sort of way. So instead of having, uh, you know, the truth, as everyone always talks about, revealed, right, you have a particular sort of truth revealed. And probably the, the quickest example uh, is to talk about what's called temporal jurisdiction. So all courts, you have to decide what period of time are we going to look at, what location, and what sorts of people will be within the purview of the court. And those are all highly political decisions. So in Cambodia, what have you said? Well, we're going to try Kissinger in the U.S. for what took place before, since it had an impact on what took place under the Khmer Rouge uh, from 1975 to 1979, or look at you know the geopolitics afterwards. So the course, these are the powers who are deciding, uh, you know, and confined, restricting the, uh, the jurisdiction. So they kept to the period of Khmer Rouge rule and they effectively erased this very important history. And so that's an example of Fasada's deception more actually through the construction of the court and intentional de- uh, decisions, you ultimately have a form of uh, deception where truth is rendered in a particular sort of way and one that ultimately doesn't accord with a lot of the uh, goods that are said to come with transitional justice, one of which is the truth. And defense lawyers were quick to pick up on this and make it a pillar of their uh, defense arguments, uh, constantly talking about, well, why aren't we talking about the U.S.? Why aren't we talking about China? Well, whereas everybody knew that the answer was politics. But again, I just want to clarify that I'm not dismissing the court. It did lots of good things. But this court and all courts are political. And you always have this sort of deception. So you have things that are missed. You have things that are intentionally obscured. And in terms of critical thinking, to step behind the facade, you have to constantly be looking for both, which, again, is the exercise of critical thinking like that photo of Doik, where you had two different languages, people read it in different ways. If you don't understand the context and different sets of meanings, part of the meaning will be obscured to you. Uh, so again, that's a, another current that cuts across both of the books. Yeah, and so so much of your book is, this book is a, is a plea to go beyond the abstract and universal and, and consider specifics and, and, and locality. I wonder, so... Pursuing this idea of um, time and, and jurisdiction, you talk about international standards of justice and the way that was understood by various parties and the ways various parties responded to that notion. So, so maybe as an example of, or maybe an expansion of this idea of uh, jurisdiction, what what role did this idea of international standards of justice play in in these courts? Well, again, so when a court, so there are discussions of transitional justice uh, that take place, for example, at the UN, which is where you have, uh, you know, sort of the codification in some sense um, of what this means to the international community, uh, since the UN is the predominant uh, global multilateral mechanism 
of course, there are also mechanisms that exist on the transnational, regional, local, and sub-domestic levels. But in terms of the international community, what the UN, when they file these, uh, they have these documents that sort of state what something is, uh, that's taken as sort of the voice of the international community often. So there are documents that say, you know, literally, what is transitional justice that have been produced by the UN? Um, and over time, what happened, I gave part of the genealogy and I referred to the transitional justice uh, imaginary as the classic version, um, you know, as a classic vision, which is a teleological transformation. But over time, especially as we got into the 2000s and into the present, people began to increasingly be aware that you can't just arrive and give the gift of justice. For anthropologists, of course, all gifts uh, are read as something that are meaningful acts that are done in terms of a dyadic relationship that connotes status and hierarchy. Uh, I'll leave that as a little aside. Uh, there's a famous literature on the gift in anthropology. Um, you know, so you don't just give the gift um, of justice uh, and as you know, the gift as well in this context, if you're erasing history and a history that implicates the people giving a gift, it's even more uh, confounded. Um, but within these documents, formulating what trans transitional justice is, uh, people spoke about international standards. People refer back to, uh, you know, like the international human rights law, international humanitarian law, different UN conventions dating back to you know, debates uh, at UNESCO about what, you know, what human rights means, what culture means. So there's a long genealogy and all, we always have this tension between the universal and the particular. So there'll be formulations like, well, all tribunals, all transitional justice uh, initiatives uh, have to pay attention and respect local traditions, dot, 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 even as they must adhere to international standards. So again, you know, what is an international standard? That's something that, again, is a projection that can erase the meanings that are on the ground. And often uh, it's done in secular terms as opposed to religious terms. And so what I wanted to look at was how when you get notions of uh, justice that come with uh, assumptions about universe, uh, universality, uh, you know, they're often utopian. They can note notions of progress. Uh, they're done in this sort of globalizing frame, the spread of knowledge uh, from the global north often to the global south is how it's rendered, or from implicitly the civilized to the savage. Uh, those are examples of uh, binary essentialism that's there. Uh, so as opposed to just having the implementation of, implementation of these international standards, you had transformation and creativity on the local ground and a rendering of justice of these quote-unquote international standards in a particular sort of way. So what ultimately, so I mentioned the person, uh, the civil party, Jumai, before. He's the one who, when I went to tool slaying, said, oh, yeah, that, you know, it's, that's stoic. It symbolizes his ignorance. Um, you know, I talked to him about the court, and I said, oh, yeah, the court, justice. And he, he's, of all the civil parties, is one of the most highly educated and socialized into transitional justice. He's a public figure, speaks all the time. Uh, and he could sort of talk some of the language of you know, global justice. Uh, and he said to me, oh yeah, but the court's Buddhist. Because again, ultimately for him, 
there was this reading where he could almost speak both languages to an extent, but ultimately, if he came down to it, local Buddhist understandings were essential. And one of the things that emerges about the civil parties that were participating, for example, is many of them, so in Cambodia, justice, right? Uh, it's a, you know, if you translate it, it has a Buddhist inflection, talking about Dharma. Um, Yutatoa is the term. So it connotes, has Buddhist connotations, even in the very word itself. Um, but the reading was that you would, you know, you could talk about getting justice, but ultimately the spirits of the dead are alive uh, and or and they disrupt the lives of the living by haunting the living. So you have the person who showed the photograph uh, in court where the sort of brother was there. People do ceremonies, uh, light incense all the time to sort of placate uh, and ease, as they would say, uh, the relationship with the spirits of the dead who aren't reborn. They're sort of caught between uh, you know, their past life and their rebirth because of their violent death. So a lot of people view the tribunal as a way to transfer justice, which in the Cambodian context is a form of merit, through monks to the dead to ease their, uh, their unease, to soothe the relations with the living and ultimately enable the spirits of the dead to be reborn and to stop harming the living. So again, you say, what's the value of the tribunal to a lot of Cambodians? Well, people there, yeah, let's lock them up, right? Get a conviction that's good. But for some, perhaps most of those who are devoutly Buddhist, what's critical is this transformation of the relationship to the spirits of the dead. And they're all, so they would have these, uh, what are called bunk skull ceremonies that would take place uh, all the time at the tribunal that the civil parties would do. Uh, and I think for a lot of people who didn't understand local traditions, they'd say, oh, look, they're going and doing their Buddhist ceremonies with no idea that in effect, they were transferring, you know, what we call justice to the spirits of the dead through the monks, right, as a modality of merit transfer uh, in Buddhism. Um, you know, one other sort of quick aside, uh, you know, the notion of karma, gamma, gam. Uh, implies that there is a bond, a linkage between different parties, perhaps dating back to past lives. And so you also have some people who would articulate a notion that because of my bad karma, that's why I was, for example, as uh, Bu Meng, another civil party, told me, I was imprisoned at S21. It was my bad karma. And I think, and he told me, I think, you know, Doik, uh, that again, Doik is the person in Manor Monsters, the head of uh, S21 uh, Torture Interrogation Center. I think that Doik and I are tied, and we had relations in the past, and then we we're both have been reborn, and this is a continuation, but we're bound together, we're tied together. And so, karma itself inflects even the very way of thinking about justice or what will happen to those who've committed bad deeds. Well, in Buddhism, they're going to be reborn their future lives. And depending on sort of how you read karma, people, you know, Buddhist uh, philosophers read it in different ways. One can be, you can see the consequences of karma immediately because ultimately everything's impermanent momentary aggregations coming together and dissipating. Um, but some people think about like in your next life, when you're reborn, um, you know, and they'll say, well, doik is going to be reborn as the most hideous, uh, detestable, despicable form of being imaginable deep in the Buddhist hells. 
so uh, again, you know, these sorts of understandings don't align with, you know, the transitional justice imaginary. And so there's a tradition. Uh, but like that photograph, what you often have, you have the process of justice, people who are reading it and, you know, sort of Judeo-Christian uh, registers and, you know, in this case, English and the Doik photo are reading it in a particular sort of way. And people on the local level, you know, are reading it in a completely different way. And there is, you know, people are bilingual. They can speak different, to different extents. They can understand different registers. But by and large, uh, this was, you know, people... Um, working at the court, and there are many people I greatly respect and know far more about legal justice, obviously, than I do, but they know less about Cambodian uh, culture and society, which I do know a fair amount about. Uh, and they, you know, this was a, I don't even know if it was of interest, but certainly wasn't something that was foremost on their mind because also people working at the tribunal are working day and night uh, to get ready for cases, and something like this is maybe a modest interest, but, you know, the goal is to, uh, you know, to pay for prosecution or defense to uh, get your client uh, off the hook or convict the person. Hmm. So one of the places this shows up excuse me, is, is in the role of civil parties and the participation of civil parties in the trials. And, and that's something newish, I guess, to use that precise academic word. So how does it happen that civil parties participate and, and how did they understand what their role was going to be? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So, you know, again, I didn't know this when I began the project. Uh, I didn't, I knew a bit about it, but, you know, you have these two very different traditions of law and the common law system in which, um, you know, the prosecutor especially plays a leading role. Uh, and the judge is sort of an arbiter, um, and civil party civil suits are done separately, right? That's how it works in the common law. Civil in the civil law tradition, those two things are brought together. The judges take on a lot of the functions and actions that would norm that would be done by prosecutors and defense uh, in the common law tradition, and they're much more proactive when they begin. They have a large case file of information. They have a vision of how the court, the case will go. And then people sort of, uh, the prosecution defense, uh, are sort of working within those parameters. It's very, and so there's investigating judges who, before the case begins, creates a case file. Uh, and they basically have, um, you know, an argument about the case that's well, very spelled out. Uh, and so it's very different than the common law tradition. So in the civil law tradition, the civil parties are part support the prosecution, they have their lawyers in the court, they sit in the court. But to get to your, you know, your question, that it's hard because this is the structure, and it's a structure many people, say, in the United States are not at all familiar with. Uh, you know, if they think of civil law, they might think of the O.J. Simpson trial, for example, was often the first way they would think about it, where you had a criminal trial and then you had a civil trial. Uh, but most people aren't very aware of this. So... That was the question, the one that you raised. Well, how, you know, sort of how do you educate people, which is the way the court, people the court would formulate it, and enable their participation? Because in one sense, there's just a sort of basic functionality where people uh, in the United States, where I live, I know all you know, listeners uh, from around the globe, but in the United States, there are constantly TV shows involving lawyers. 
everything is about lawsuits. Um, I have a Cambodian friend who always talks about the U.S. being the culture of law is the, how he, he puts it, right? Everything's law, right? Lawsuits, cases. It's very different than many other parts of the world, including Cambodia, where the goal is to avoid a court. Because once you, if you go to court, you're going to have to pay a bribe. And whoever pays the most money is going to win the case because of a bribe. So you have third-party people who want to stay away from courts. They don't trust courts uh, because they view the personnel there as uh, corrupt. And so they use third-party mediation much, much more, right? So you always go to a third-party mediator. Um, and though you do have money that flows there when things like land are at stake. So that's, but that's a, anyway, I, I wrote about this in my book, uh, Why Did They Kill, about these sorts of things. And I talk about them in the justice facade. So the, the question then is, how do you take people who distrust a legal system and don't aren't watching, uh, you know, Ally McBeal, a show that maybe people don't watch anymore. I don't know. There, there's some correlate of that that exists, I'm sure. Uh, and explain what law is. So, you know, there were so you began to have NGOs in particular at the beginning because courts never give money uh, to support public affairs. They get very minimal uh, backing, even though everybody knows you know, if you're going to have a court, it needs to be meaningful to people. And so you think you would invest heavily in public affairs uh, and outreach. But uh, in this court, as with many other courts, uh, it was completely ignored. There was no funding at the start. And so they relied on, there's very little funding, I should say. There was some, but it was minuscule. So they relied on NGOs. Many of the NGOs had experience uh, dating back to uh, when the UN first came to Cambodia after the Cold War in the early 1990s and held a UN-backed election. Uh, and they drew up a new constitution for Cambodia that included human rights provisions. There was a lot of money pumped into Cambodia to support NGOs uh, to educate people about human rights and democracy. And each NGO, you know, and I talk about each of the chapters actually in Justice Facade features a different NGO and talks about the way they sought to educate people um, about the court. And they did so in often dramatically different uh, manner that was influenced by, for example, the leadership. Um, and so you had the NGOs taking a role within each NGO. They have different traditions and the people working in the NGOs, the leaders often are sort of bilingual. If we go back to the metaphor, able to read the photo, both languages in the photo, to greater or lesser extents. And they have people working for them who may have, say, less familiarity with this metaphor uh, with English. And so you have at all these different levels, you have knowledge being dissimulated, circulating, and people are trying to convey meaning in different sorts of ways. But once you get to the ground level, if you just monologue about law, people's eyes are going to glaze over. Actually, they'll probably glaze over everywhere, uh, you know, because it's not meaningful. So the trick was to find metaphors uh, and ways of speaking that would make this come alive for people. And I'll just give you so the book traces out different ways this was done. One NGO, uh, one person I spoke with and feature Cassie Node. Uh, when he was doing a lot of human rights work, uh, he even said, well, we go out and you have the moral precepts, but we found that if we would go talk to the monks, we talked to them about human rights, uh, and they would just sort of take off and go with these stories. But the way they talked about, quote unquote, human rights, 
is they use Buddha stories. So ultimately, you began with funding from external donors aimed to promote a secular idea that by the time you got to the grassroots level was being completely recast in terms of Buddhist stories, right? Completely different translation. And actually, the other title, The Justice Facade, uh, was Justice in Translation, which is the title of the last chapter. Uh, that was that was the other one I was uh, I was considering. Um, so again, Justice Facade traces out this process of knowledge transformation. And to go back to your very the question you asked at the very beginning, uh, you know, you begin with quote unquote international standards, and those are even those are hard to define. Well, if you're trying to translate those on the local level, you end up with very very different things. And so that, but again, the justice facade, justice facade as obfuscation, which is people are missing it. There's other stuff going on they're not aware about because then they don't understand the local vernaculars and deception, which is in another way, there's also a lot of money that's put in to have sort of outcomes with this process. We have the jurisdiction. Uh, so you have these two dimensions of the facade that are at work. Uh, but ultimately, everybody wants to say, oh, yeah, this trial accorded with international standards. Uh, which is sort of the baseline of global legitimacy. Uh, and to say that, if you say, well, we're teaching about justice in terms of Buddhist stories, you know, that's not going to sound too good. So the local understandings are largely erased, pushed aside, deemed irrelevant, um, even as, as I, you know, I should say, I've swear, there are fantastic people who work at the court, uh, you know, and in terms of my interviews, they were incredibly cooperative. They were generally interested uh, to some extent, you know, in these issues, but they were, I think, often considered irrelevant. The job was to get a conviction, to run the court, or to get a client off the hook. So I know there's been a lot of response to this this book, um, The Justice Facade. Uh, I wonder maybe if uh, I know that you've engaged in um, dialogue with the, many of the people who've responded to it. I wonder if you could Maybe summarize some of the the responses to your argument um, and, and and how you've received them. Uh, for so for which book both or uh, well specifically for the justice facade disparate mm-hmm. Yeah, so the justice facade is newer. Uh, Manor Monster came out in 2016. Uh, the justice facade came out in 2018, uh, and so. You know, Manor Monster, in a sense, has entered in, especially because of the huge number of reviews. Uh, there's been a lot of dialogue uh, about that book, uh, which also speaks uh, to some extent about the justice facade. In terms of the justice facade, I think that what you may often find with anthropological arguments is that people uh, say, well, that's interesting. Oh, you know kind of quaint, but I don't really care that much, right? Or it's, well, you know, that's interesting. They think about justice this way, but ultimately, you know, what's really important is global justice, right? Fighting authoritarianism, despotic regimes. Um, So with the justice facade, I think that it often, I mean, because the book uh, is a direct reaction to one of the, uh, central arguments in the field of global justice, questioning its foundational assumptions, you know, again, noting that there are in each locality, what we call global justice takes on different sorts of meanings. 
right? So it acknowledges that, but it questions the entire enterprise. Uh, and in that way, uh, it's very provocative. It also, the title, uh, to some extent, plays off uh, the work of another author, Catherine Sickink, who wrote a book called The Justice Cascade. Um, and that book, uh, you know, she did an incredible, you know, an incredible amount of research looking at transitional justice initiatives across the globe uh, and arguing that there has been this thing called the justice cascade. Uh, and that metaphor itself, you know, implies rushing water uh, going forward. Uh, so justice is being delivered around the world in situations uh, where you had conflict, authoritarian regimes, uh, you know, sort of justice is being delivered uh, one way or the other and, you know, different mechanisms you have truth commissions, trials, uh, memorialization, so on and so forth. So each section of my book, uh, the justice facade, and sort of playing back, sort of takes the notion of facade and says, well, what's going on beneath the surface of the water? You have whirlpools, currents and eddies, uh, to again, sort of argue with this, this move that while, you know, my, she's done great research, uh, she's a leading scholar, I admire her work. But her work erases local complexity. Because local complexity is erased, it's something that appeals to a lot of people, especially in you know diplomatic uh, diplomatic fields, different officials. Uh, I hear people mention this at conferences, especially by people involved in practice, uh, say, yeah, the justice cascade, as if it's a taken-for-granted thing. Uh, anyway, so the, this book directly, uh, you know, it says, wait a second, we need to stop. We're erasing local understandings. Uh, we're making assumptions and we need to look at it much more deeply. Uh, and if you think about you sort of return to a uh, post-colonial lens, right? What does it mean if, you, if there's a initiative or a way of talking about an initiative that erases the local in some sense, Right. It's so again, a sort of, I don't, it's too easy to say a neo imperialist project uh, or to use language like that, but it certainly diminishes uh, and perhaps even demeans local understandings in ways that I think are unfortunate. And ultimately, in the end, if you want to have an effective transitional justice mechanism, the best way to do it is to attend to local meanings, to look at the local creativity. You're going to have a much more effective. Uh, tribunal or Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, if you're closely attending to local understandings. And that's really something that should be done at the start. But again, people, we go back to people working on these initiatives, they're, you know, they're overworked, uh, they're on the go. Some of them parachute in and go out quickly. They circulate among different uh, tribunals. Um, it's an inconvenient uh it's inconvenient to talk about this complexity. Uh, so you get back and sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's complex. But ultimately, we have to do the important thing, which is deliver global justice. Uh, so I think, you know, the 2018, you know, now it's 2019. The book came out relatively recently. Um, you know, there are a different set of discussions with uh, why did they kill, which I, I alluded to before. I mean, excuse me, with Matter Monster, so I don't think I need to reiterate those. Um, yeah, and I want to turn to that in the brief time we've got left, uh, because you, you use the title Manor Monster that 
I think seems relatively parallel, but not exactly the same to the chapter titles that, that where the civil parties you describe as portraying um, Doik as a villain, and prosecutor, perhaps prosecution as a zealot, whereas the defense, that chapter is entitled scapegoat. So, so what are, how are those pictures of Doik different? What, what do they mean when, or what do you mean, I guess, since they're your chapter titles to, to talk about villain, zealot, and scapegoat? Right. So um, with Matter Monster, again, as an anthropologist, you're trying to tune to locality, right? Being present, participant observation, listen to what's going on, uh, as opposed to coming in saying, I'm going to do my XYZ research uh, that's going to end up answering this exact question. Uh, so one of the frames from the very beginning, so I arrive, I go to the Doik trial, I start attending it all the time. And the formulation was ultimately sort of manner monster. That was literally the headline in a, in a uh, newspaper before the trial started. Comrade Doik, manner monster. It was a trope uh, that circulated. Uh, people would actually invoke Eichmann at times, those who were more familiar. Um, uh, sorry, that's Hannah Arendt's uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh, for those who may not be familiar. Uh, they would mention uh, Eichmann. Um, so this is another sort of phrase that I knew at the beginning was somehow going to be central to the project. And, you know, you look into it, ultimately, it was a way that the defense and the prosecution had constructed their cases, right? So the defense was arguing, you know, Doik, especially since this is the civil law tradition, uh, you know, we say Doik confesses that he ran the prison. And, you know, in a way he had to because there was overwhelming evidence that that was the case. And we need to, but he was caught in the system. He was a cog in the machine, right? This was the quote unquote man, man argument. The prosecution talked about Doik, said, well, no, he was a fervent zealot uh, who did savage, horrible uh, things. Uh, and so they, they wanted to present Doik as a monster, right? So these were also the prosecution defense arguments, then had psychological evaluation uh, that uh, was done as well. So the, the sort of question, man or monster, right, that was operative at the tribunal, as I mentioned earlier, if you... Go back to tools. So that during the trial, uh, they would put different confessions on screen. And when the Khmer Rouge were uh, at tool slaying Doik, when Doik's tortures, interrogators were, uh, when they were interrogating people, they would write out, the person would have to write out a confession. You know, as this process was going on, they would have to write it and rewrite it. And literally, sometimes you would see, just like the Doik photo with the eyes, you would see the interrogator scratching out lines, making comments, asking to uh, asking the prisoner to expound on points. And ultimately, what they were doing is that people would be asked to take their revolutionary history, because many of them were viewed as counter-revolutionary traitors from different factions who were being purged. And they, they were saying, take your history and make it one of a history of allegiance to the CIA or the KGB. Um, and so they would talk about contacts and they would just rewrite everything in terms of this other frame. But that notion, again, just like the eyes with different meanings, right? You have the scribbling out, you have articulations, you have redactions, and you have the transformation of a narrative into a different set of meanings. So again, this process of 
right, categorical reductionism that was operative at tool slang, that's operative in genocide in general, that's operative uh, in discourses we find uh, with populist movements, uh, including the United States today, right, was present in the courtroom where you had this reductionism, right, into binary thinking about a human being who has a complexity that far exceeds uh, the, these reductive uh, binary categories. Uh, and, you know, anyways, and I, so the law itself is predicated upon the same logic that circulates uh, in the torture chamber, which is similar to the logic that circulates in a psychological evaluation, which is the same logic that informs our thinking about the world in everyday life. And this is where I make the turn to uh, Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil and rework it in terms of the banality of what I call everyday thought, uh, which is talking about the way we render complex human beings in simplified, redacted forms, uh, you know, constantly in our lives and especially in times of upheaval where existential anxiety uh, is accentuated. Uh, and then you also have um, what I refer to as thick frames of power, which is where you have a lot of institutional coercion to read or to articulate people in a certain sort of way. So in law, you have a frames that inflect you to talk about the person on trial as a certain type of person. And say in a psychological evaluation, you have different categories of frame this way, as you do in the torture chamber, in the midst of democratic cappuccia, where you have a very developed ideology uh, and you have a lot of course of power for people who are doing the interrogation to render versions of those traitors, quote unquote, that accord with what the regime is saying they should be. So I'm going on a little bit long, but that itself is a fairly provocative uh, argument because, and again, I don't, I'm not sure many people picked up on that, uh, that sort of controversial aspect of that argument, but they picked up on a lot of different things. A lot of people if I had spelled it out as I just sort of spoke it, then probably people would have gotten it more readily. But again, the idea of the book is to do it right by showing, right, not telling. Uh, anyway, so it's uh, you know it, that was that was that seemed to accord with the performative aspect of the trial, so that's why I wrote the book that way. So we've taken a lot of your time. Um, <clears throat> I always ask, well, before we get to the last question, so, so if there's one takeaway from these books that you would like listeners to remember, what would that be? Well, I think it was precisely what I was just speaking yeah, about. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, you know, that we constantly, by the way that human beings uh, process information in social realities that include institutional context that also inflect us to read things in certain sorts of ways. We're constantly in, you know, articulating other human beings and other groups of human beings. We have a tendency to articulate in the reductive manner. It's part of the way that we think. And what's really difficult. And so at the end of the book, I return to ethics and talk about that as a facement where ultimately you're literally rubbing out the face, the complexity of, the person who belongs to that group, that type of a person, right? That's a facement. 
and saying there's an old English word called a face, to efface someone, which is to look at another person and see their complexity, difficult as it is, right? Because complexity is difficult. It's like the argument of the justice facade. Local complexity is difficult. It's much easier to render, to sort of go with a more simplified version of things, articulation of things. So that's the ethical challenge to all of us is to, especially in times, and I think actually the United States at this moment, uh, this certainly uh, pertains to the U.S. Uh, very readily, uh, is to try and listen and understand uh, other people and avoid the sort of simple uh, labels and categorizations uh, that fly all the time. Uh, and so, you know, the, in terms of the takeaway, it's this sort of lesson that this is the way human beings in social groups construct the world. It almost always is the case. And so the challenge to all of us is to step back and efface and try and understand complexity, because if we don't, that's the only way to get out of this trap um, of, of, of uh, you know, articulation. That's a good point to end the interview. I always ask two final questions. One is um, for uh, people not involved in the middle of the semester and busy with piles of papers on their desk, what, what are two or three books or maybe one or two books or documentaries or something that you found meaningful to you while, you, while you've been doing research on this topic? What, what should listeners read or watch? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good question, a difficult one. Um, you know, I think just sort of the easiest uh, out of the sort of emerges from our conversation is I think Hannah Arendt's uh, Banality of Evil is always a, a great book to turn to. And uh, when I was at Wesleyan uh, long ago, actually, that was one of the books I read, uh, I think my sophomore year. Um, but I, again, had no idea I'd be studying genocide studies. I didn't, I didn't even know what genocide studies was. I, the field was barely invented at that point, and it was very far from my uh, interest. But uh, I was really taken by the book then, and I think it bears rereading. And certainly Hannah Arendt's work in general speaks to this moment in history, and there's been a bit of resurgence. There's even a graphic narrative. Uh, you know, as an aside, I'm using graphic narratives or graphic novels. Uh, some people like to call them comics increasingly in my teaching, um, you know, and there, it's actually, there's a lot of complex theory that links to it, but visually it's engaging, but there's now a Hannah Arendt, uh, there's like a graphic novel about Hannah Arendt. Um, yeah, it just came out. Um, but in terms of other books, you know, if I think of Wesleyan, you know, a book I read my freshman year, uh, that's always, a, I think it's the book I remember most from college, uh, there's this guy, Collingwood, um, who wrote a book called The Idea of Nature. He also had a book called The Idea of uh, History. He's a historian uh, back in the early 1900s. And there was a, in my very first class, we, uh, my teacher was this guy named Eugene Golub, who was a Collingwood specialist and, of course, therefore gave us Collingwood. Uh, but I always have remembered the first day of class, small seminar, he arrived, big smile, he paused, put down his uh, thermos, screwed his thermos. We were all watching with anticipation, poured out his coffee. We watched it, you know, the cascade down into his coffee cup. He looked up, smiled and said, what do you want to talk about today? Which again was this idea that he wasn't there to expound, but in fact, we were active dialogical participants who were going to help create and shape a conversation about what we had read. 
Um, anyways, that's a little story about the person who was the con. We also had Louis Mink, who was fairly famous, who was there and also was a Collingwood uh, specialist. He smoked a pipe. I remember one time I asked him a question in class, puffed his pipe, and he just sat there for like three minutes. We sat there in silence before he replied. Maybe it was five minutes. It seemed like an eternity. But it was, again, the notion of thinking deeply about something. Um, you know, so these experiences from there, but I, I've always, the book, the idea of nature stuck with me because it talks about how the idea of nature shifts through time, which through the analogy with anthropology is how do, how do things like quote unquote nature or global justice, how do they shift across place, right? So it's the same sort of thing. One's a historical way of looking at this variation. The other is a, uh, is a spatial way of looking at it. Uh, and, you know, another thing I did a lot of Greek tragedy, uh, believe it or not, back at Wesleyan and wrote my senior thesis on it. Uh, and I'd sort of gone far, far away from it. But recently, last semester, um, I returned to the myth of Medusa. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that. anyways, I used it in teaching and I used it in my writing. I taught a graphic narrative version as well as looking at Ovid, another, you know, the myth. Uh, anyway, so in the different forms, you know, I think, Greek mythology, like even a myth like Medusa has a lot to say. And I'll just give you the, you know, 30 second version, uh, you know, as sort of why Medusa, you know, Medusa condenses action down right to these two figures. And if you want the matter monster frame, right, you have Perseus, the hero versus the evil monster uh, Medusa. But ultimately what you have is you have the erasure of complex histories that precede it where ultimately Medusa, and again, there's sort of a Roman tradition and Greek tradition, um, was a beautiful woman uh, who Poseidon uh, slept, raped in one version uh, in Athena's temple, uh, which led to her to uh, transform this beautiful woman, Medusa, into a monster. And so, again, the myth itself, the way we think about it, that, you know, and often I use the uh, high school. Uh, you know, comic book that sometimes is used in classes to sort of get at this, you have the erasure of this complex history, right? The redaction that takes place. And if we think of a moment of violence to sort of hone in on our topic, right? You have a violent event that takes place where she's uh, decapitated. She herself has harmed many other people, but she herself is also the victim of violence. And cycles of violence in these histories that are very complex. So ultimately, as opposed to this sort of essentialized man versus monster moment of violence, you have a much more complex story that's been erased that you need to attend to, to understand it. Uh, and so anyways, that, that's just something I revisited recently and that uh, I, you know, go out and get your Medusa Perseus comic or go back and, you know, look at Ovid, what have you. Uh, but I think it, you know, it bears the test of time, certainly. Huh. The last question, what are you working on now? Ah, well, you're not going to, not going to believe it. The, the two books, uh, there's actually the project that looks like is a trilogy. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I wasn't, when I testified, uh, at the tribunal, uh, it was three and a half days. It included a direct exchange with brother number two, Nguyen Pol Pot died, uh, I think it was 1998. So anyways, he's not there. So he's the highest ranking uh, Khmer Rouge of, 
uh, official. He was the propagandist. Uh, anyways, he, he was front and center. Uh, so I had an exchange with him. Everyone said, oh, you should write about this. I said, well, I have two books on the tribunal. I'm a little burned out and I want to turn to something new. Um, but then, you know, it's 2016, Super Tuesday had just taken place. Uh, Trump was coming. There were all of these sort of metaphors and analogies to him being the second coming of Hitler. Uh, you know, this sort of discourse has continued into the present with the southern border camp controversies. Um, yeah, but I still wasn't going to write about it. Uh, and then finally, though, you know, when Charlottesville uh, hit, uh, I ended up, the American Anthropological Association issued a call for anthropologists to do teach-ins because anthropologists have done a lot of work on race. Uh, and so I did that, and that sort of catalyzed the transformation of my teaching. Uh, but as we had a lot of white power extremist violence, uh, I began to say, you know, people talk about the lessons of the past. Uh, and I began to see that, uh, you know, my testimony at the tribunal, marriage history, as well as genocide studies in general, had something important uh, to say about white power extremism, as well as uh, discourses invoked by uh, President Trump. And so I am actually literally this week uh, completing uh, a manuscript uh, about this uh, that links my testimony and the first part to uh, to white power uh, in the United States, with the focus broadly being on extremism. Well, a trilogy sometimes, who knows? Perhaps for George R. R. Martin, ends up in seven books. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, no, now. that's it. I'm I'm on to a different project. <laughs> I never imagined that I would. Well, we have it on tape, and we'll see if that is true. All but, right. Um, um, yeah, it's. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll be back with us at some point in the future to talk about that manuscript. We've been talking to Alex Hinton about his books, The Justice Facade, Trials of Transition in Cambodia, and Man or Monster, The Trial of a Khmer Rouge Torture. Next month, uh, I'll be talking to Christopher Browning and Peter Hayes about their book, German Railroad's Jewish Souls, which is a new appreciation of the work of Rolf Hilberg. And I hope listeners will join us then. But until then, thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate your spending your time with us. Thank you uh, for spending your time with me and for having me on. I appreciate it.